This is WWVUFM Morgantown, and this is Say Something Nice, the weekly music discussion show on United to the Moose, where Griffin and Anthony recommend each other an album that the other has not heard, and then we say something nice. Uh, I am Anthony. I'm Griffin. Uh, and we've got another killer week coming up for you. Uh, I'll go ahead and introduce the first album, or at least we'll just say it by name. Uh, I recommended Songs of Love and Hate. Uh, by Leonard Cohen. Yeah, and I uh, recommended uh, the album People Who Can Eat Other People Are the Luckiest People in the World by AJJ. At the time of that album's release, they were known as Andrew Jackson Jihad. Um, and this week we are starting with my recommendation. So I'll go ahead and talk a little bit about this album. Uh, Songs of Love and Hate by Leonard Cohen is his third album. Uh, Leonard Cohen was previously a writer. He put out, I think, two novels and three or four volumes of poetry uh, before deciding to pursue music, uh, which in his own words, basically just to make a little bit of coin, he thought he could make some more money as a songwriter uh, than he could as a regular writer. Um, And so he wrote the song Suzanne for Judy Collins, which was a big hit uh, and was also his lead single to his first album, Songs of Leonard Cohen, released in 1967, which kickstarted the, in my opinion, legendary trilogy uh, of his songs album, Songs of Leonard Cohen, Songs from a Room, uh, and Songs of Love and Hate, today's uh, topic. This album's extremely dark. Uh, Rolling Stone absolutely panned it whenever they reviewed it, surprise, Um, and basically just called it depressing. which they found as a reason to really dislike this album. It's a reason that I really love this album because it kind of fits in that canon uh, that I would be able to call like the darkest albums of all time, uh, which include this, also like Closer by Joy Division, uh, and I'll toss uh, Atrocity Exhibition by Danny Brown in that same kind of canon. But uh, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, But I'll go ahead and let you, Griffin, uh, tell me what you thought of this yeah i was giggling because i was just thinking about atrocity exhibition and leonard cohen and i was thinking about him saying the line uh i'm like kubrick with two bricks and i will say girls on the strip because uh-huh. i don't know what i can do with <laughs> um all three excellent albums by the way but i just that that parallel in my mind made me giggle a little bit but <laughs> this album i thought was absolutely fantastic it is I'd never listened to any Leonard Cohen outside of like his most popular songs of, you know, Hallelujah. I think I'd heard Suzanne before, like Mm -hmm. his his very popular ones. Um, This still took me uh, back. Just uh, the first track on it, I got about halfway through it before I realized like, I'm going to have to have a lyrics sheet for this one. Yes. Um, I'd known, and it's interesting. I did not know that he started out as an author, um, which is Mm -hmm. so surprising to me. He's such a good songwriter. Yeah. Um, I I'd realized he released poetry before, but I always assumed it was one of those things where like he'd written some poetry um, and then set it to song. Um, you know, that kind of dichotomy. I've heard that mm-hmm. in singer-songwriters before. Knowing that he was a published author and poet Pretty makes a lot more... Too. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. These songs are very, very writerly. Like, they're very mm-hmm. lyrical in a way where it's like there's... If you don't hold on to the lyrics here... There, I, I don't want to say there's not going to be a lot else for you because this is a very musical album too and that like the music doesn't feel like it's just slapped together to have something under it. It feels very 
purposeful um, and very pretty at points too mm-hmm. on, on songs like Joan of Arc and uh, Last Year's Man. The, the vocals that come in to uh, accompany Leonard Cohen on those tracks I think are really great. Um, but yeah, it, it's very much an album that is focused on the songwriting in a way that I haven't heard before really. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of was concerned having heard Leonard Cohen all these years as being propped up as one of, you know, the greatest uh, songwriters of all time, that he would be kind of one of those ones that was like, you know, great for his time, but since then has kind of not fallen off, but just it's nothing new to hear because like other songwriters have kind of taken that approach or Mm -hmm. appropriated it in different ways. But I think he still very much stands in a lane of his own after listening to this album the whole way through. Like the the lyricism on here is like nothing I've ever heard before. There are some connections I can make. Like going back, there are some moments where I can connect it to some of like the wordier Dylan tracks, like Bob Dylan, uh, his early folk stuff, or like going forward a decade maybe I could connect it to some like David Berman, Silver Jews type stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's still very distinct from either of those sounds. It's very much its own thing. Um, but yeah, I just I thought the sound was was yeah. fantastic. I really um, enjoyed it. Not to totally uh, diverge here, but the mm-hmm. Dylan uh, comparison is actually pretty interesting because uh, this album and also his previous one, Songs from a Room, was produced by Bob Johnston, uh, who was Dylan's producer and did a bunch of stuff like uh, Highway 61 Revisited, Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, Nashville, Skyline, Self-Portrait, and New Morning. See, production-wise, and, and instrumentally, there were some songs on here that reminded me of John Wesley Harding, which mm-hmm. I would say is the most uh, desolate and, and kind of strange and eerie uh, Bob Dylan album. That's the one where All, uh, All Along the Watchtower comes from originally, yes. uh, which in and of itself, I think just as a, I feel like most people know that song, probably more know the Hendrix version, but mm-hmm. lyrically is a very kind of weird and eerie song. Um, and that's all Dylan, you know, from the, coming from a lyrical perspective. But uh, John Wesley Harding is, is very much, uh, sound-wise, did remind me of this album. But uh, most stuff, I would say, I, I wasn't getting, like, a lot of Highway 61 revisited. Mm-hmm. Um, not many I mean, that's partly, yeah, that's partly just in due because of Bob, uh, Bob Johnston's uh, product, production philosophy more than... Uh, who else he's produced. What, what is that philosophy? Uh, he has, I think it's been described more as like a kind of, um, ooh, what's the word? Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll find it in a second. Uh, like a documentary approach to production and so he really tries to capture like a fleeting moment which happened a lot with dylan's kind of stuff uh but then of course uh he used a bunch of session musicians and everything for kind of like this leonard cohen album uh yeah i I, it's weird i can still kind of hear that though in the small amount of research i did which was mostly just when looking at lyrics uh, uh from this album um for example like track two uh last year's man Mm -hmm. He said on that song um, that, or Cohen said on that song rather, that um, he always liked specifically that recording, but this was a song, the way he made it sound that he had written uh, for a few years prior and that he had played live in in different capacities. Um, But specifically, he liked the way that that was, I would guess it comes down to the production. I don't know how much of the album Cohen had to do with instrumentally, um, 
because I, I believe he only played guitar and piano, maybe? Yeah, if he even played piano. I know most of it was guitar. I, I'm pretty sure Cohen covered I, all I the songwriting. Say, uh, but I know... I sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I only say piano because I know that Hallelujah is, a, is played on piano. So yeah. I don't know if that was him on that song or not. Um, um, I don't think there's any piano be. on this album. There is a little bit, um, but mostly songs like uh, like Diamonds in the Mine has it and Sing Us Another Song Boys have piano. Um, speaking of, of Sing Us Another Song, that was another thing that I found really interesting about this album was uh, hearing very specific references uh, that others yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as soon as that song came on my mind was blown because i never i'll explain what i'm talking about for the audience <laughs> but uh Percy headrest has a song called bodies which i at least in the original version of that song uses uh explicitly the line the opening line to uh sing another song boys which I don't know if we can repeat on the radio, being that we are <laughs> uh, endowed by uh, FCC guidelines. Um, but you can look it up. It's not hard to find. Uh, and when I heard that line being so specifically referenced, and it's not buried in the mix, it's not halfway through the song, it's right at the front there, I was really taken aback. Um, and so seeing how, like the level of influence that he's had on different artists, not even in a conceptual perspective but just in a blatant reference kind of perspective um was really interesting to me because there are very few other songwriters again i could go back to bob dylan bob dylan is one that gets referenced lyrically you know a bunch uh other than that though there are very few songwriters that i would say whose lyrics just get kind of lifted and referenced uh as much as as leonard cohen's do Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is interesting. And I think that leads to something interesting about the songwriting on these songs is that they're very, they're very dense. The songwriting here is very dense. There's not a lot of space where the instrumental breathes, um, which makes the spaces where it does more interesting, but I'll come back to that. Um, but these songs for as lyrical and lyric focused as they are, they are very... I don't because abstract isn't the word I'm looking for, but they, they can be you can read a lot of different meanings into them. I feel they're like. very literary, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. the references that are used here there's a lot of uh, historical references, a lot of biblical references. Mm-hmm. And on this album specifically, there's a few motifs like uh, Joan of Arc is the title of the, the last track, um, which might be one of my favorite tracks on here. But uh, Joan of Arc is referenced in the lyrics, I believe, a couple more times throughout the rest mm-hmm. of the album. Um, which would make me wonder, I, I don't know if when Leonard Cohen wrote this album specifically or any of his albums before that, if he wrote the songs to really go with each other. Um, this album is very dark throughout, so I have to assume at least this one was kind of written to be listened to in whole, but I don't know about his other albums, if they were more collections of singles or what that situation was, and I don't know if maybe you can enlighten me on that at all. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of interesting because, uh, like you said, some of these songs uh, have been played live for a number of years. And a lot of the songs here as well, uh, like uh, Love Calls You By Your Name, has been both performed and also written like many years prior to the recording of this album. Um, And so I'm not exactly sure what his thought process is on 
when a song is necessarily ready or when he decides to take a poem that he's written previously, like Love Calls You By Your Name, uh, and adapt it into a song for a specific album. Uh, and just because of that, uh, kind of that disjointed, like pulling from different pieces of his own uh, catalog, I don't think it was necessarily all, well, I know it wasn't all written at the same time, but I wonder mm-hmm. if he maybe pulled something like Love Calls You By Your Name and is like, okay, I like the vibe of this. I'm going to try and write stuff that kind of focuses around this same, these same themes. Yeah, because there are... Avalanche like, is another example of that kind of, it was written years prior to actually being incorporated. Avalanche is so interesting to me, especially as an opener. Because it, it's the, I would say, least accessible song of this group. For sure. Um, it's very steady. And, and the guitar playing, which again, in, in my small amount of research for this album that I did, uh, I found out that this is his like distinct uh, guitar playing. Mm-hmm. And to describe it to people who have not listened to this album, it's kind of uh, flamenco style, maybe a little bit like, like classical guitar played very mm-hmm. quickly in, in like a syncopated rhythm um, that it drives and kind of like uh, propulses this, this whole song that Avalanche uh, is one of the only songs on here that does not stop for any kind of hook. Uh, there's a very, very loose verse structure. It just mm-hmm. feels like it's all this one. It, it feels kind of like in, in that way, and it's not spoken word. He does sing on, you know, throughout it, but it feels very, uh, very spoken word mm-hmm. in so far as that it just doesn't stop. It's this propulsive kind of like one uh, verse, like single verse poem. So that one, it doesn't describe, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that it started out as uh, a poem that he wrote years prior. Um, to the to the album's recording um there are some on here like the the song that i uh messaged you about moments before Mm -hmm. we recorded uh diamonds in the mine a fantastic track i i love it so much uh because it's such a standout on this album this album largely is very uh I, I won't say downtrodden because there are some very pretty tracks, but it's very slow throughout consistently. Yeah. It, it it takes its time, um, really. I, there's not a single track on here other than Diamonds in the Mind, I believe, that is under five minutes. I think That's every true. other track yeah. is over five. Uh-huh. Um, but Diamonds in the Mind is this little, the uh, almost kind of uh, reminds me of like a John prine-esque uh when he was doing like his outlaw country kind Mm -hmm. of jam uh and it's such it has such a strong hook that is revisited i believe three times which is kind (laughs) of a record for this album usually when there is a hook on other parts of the album it's at most uh revisited twice uh so hearing the chorus come for a third time right at the end was very surprising (laughs) and it's just there's like a full band on here it's Mm -hmm. a really standout track on this track list um, but what, what interests me about it was that the lyrical content didn't seem to be extremely different. Uh, throughout this album, it kind of goes back and forth from being like super desolate and downbeat and downtrodden. And, you know, that track is maybe the outlier here and that it's more jaunty. But the tracks in general are, do become kind of like, they, they spiral back and forth from, from being just completely desolate and kind of like on a, like a prettier, you know, kind of 
uh, something to compare it to. I don't want to say like Simon Garfunkel, but that's mm-hmm. like the, the closest kind of light folk rock thing that I can get to at this moment. Right. Um, but a more pleasing to the ear, I guess, kind of approach. But the lyrical matter throughout stays very, very dark. So I was wondering, like, and this goes back to, I guess, wondering um, about how he handled the instrumentals. Mm-hmm. Uh, what uh, made him think to make, you know, this is the track that I'm going to make sound one way and this is the track that I'm going to make sound the other when the lyrics to me sound very similar throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll go ahead and try and answer that question after we take a little bit of a break. But if you're listening to this podcast on any of our digital platforms, you can check out more great student-produced content at unitedtothemoose.com, Anchor, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. Uh, but if you're listening right now on 91.7 United to the Moose, we're going to take a short break, but more of Say Something Nice is coming up next on United to the Moose. Yeah, so to kind of answer your question of why some songs are extremely i guess like barren is a good way to put it like some of them are really just as a guitar occasional strings maybe some backup vocals but this one in particular and also singing another song boys uh to an extent uh are more upbeat happy sounding uh mm. and kind of feature a full band um is again just something i guess i'm going to attribute to uh bob johnston the producer because um I mean, it's not something that he's unfamiliar with, especially looking back at uh, his last album, Songs from a Room. He features more songs with a kind of, I guess, uh, although still very stripped back, more full sounding. Uh, And this album was actually recorded in Nashville, uh, along with a lot of those Dylan records that, bob johnson covered as well uh, but yeah again i'm not really certain why certain tracks he decided to be more upbeat uh and leonard cohen has said in interviews before that he uh is not opposed to kind of like rocking out and mm. he kind of like was really excited whenever he heard elvis for the first time uh and really enjoys that kind of like upbeat music uh just for some reason his some songs in his catalog don't really uh follow that sound signature as well but that's not to say he's not capable of doing that because on later albums uh especially right after this one he started to incorporate a lot more uh upbeat music into his catalog um but i think no go ahead (laughs) (laughs) Um, you can go ahead yeah i'm just not this is definitely i would say his most stripped back album and it makes songs like diamond in the mine uh really stand out for that reason yeah it sticks out so much and i'd I'd really be interested to see both uh, like the context then of what he did both before and after this, because I think he handles that sound really well. And the mm-hmm. fact that it was recorded in Nashville does really, it's really interesting to me because that makes the comparison of like a John Prine, I feel like even more apt that yeah. he may have been being inspired by this kind of uh, country. And especially in the seventies, like the outlaw country scene that was starting to spring up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. John Prine tried that out a little bit, but that was more um, with no, <laughs> you might have to make a cut here because I can't remember his name. Uh-huh. Uh, shoot. 
Waylon Jennings, uh, kind of Waylon Jennings, uh, yeah. you know, pioneered that sound or, or definitely revitalized it. Um, but, uh, so that's interesting that, to think that that may have been a conscious decision to kind of go after that sound, mm-hmm. um, especially with this producer. Um, I don't know who else he worked with around that time, but if he was working in Nashville, it's quite possible that he worked with a lot of country stars around that time. Yeah, and it's really um, funny because Leonard Cohen is admittedly a country music fan as well. And this Diamonds in the Mine uh, definitely takes on that country feel. I mean, there's slide guitar in this song, for Christ's sakes. Like, yeah. <laughs> Um, and also just to kind of bring it back again, the Simon and Garfunkel, uh, comparison that you made is also pretty funny because, uh, Bob Johnson, uh, produced both Sound of Silence and Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time. Oh man, so he was, he was everywhere then. He was, well, he was working for, uh, Columbia in Nashville at the time, so. I mean, this was, I guess, back in the day where... Um, sort of yeah producers worked for record labels and so if you were signed to that label you probably worked with this producer at least mm-hmm. uh, a few times in your career that's really interesting to think because I, I love I have I have a great deal of love and affection for a lot of the albums and songs that you're mentioning but I had no idea that uh, the people behind them were so consistent a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, so that's a really fun thing to learn especially when it comes to an album like this that is very so, so Rolling Stone did review this at the time. So was Leonard Cohen like a, a popular artist um, oh, yeah, around this time? Especially after like his first album was really acclaimed. And I mean, all of his, well, all, his early hits are all pretty much on that album. Because you have like Suzanne and So Long Marianne are his two really big songs from that one. But I mean, mm-hmm. Suzanne was already a hit before he recorded it because it was a Judy Collins song before that but he was definitely like especially if you were into the kind of folk scene uh Leonard Cohen was a pretty big name that that's interesting because I feel like uh, people who are in the know talk about him um as one of the greats one of the the legends of that scene and that time but I feel like in the popular lexicon uh or maybe at least until his death recently uh, very few of his songs were known to that extent of like uh, of like a Bob Dylan or like a Simon and Garfunkel, I would say. Aside from like Hallelujah, right? Like aside from like Hallelujah again, or yeah. Suzanne, yeah. Um, so I think that's very interesting that at the time he was just as popular as them, and it's uh, interesting to me as well because this album is so 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 different than what was out at that time, even from artists like that who who have, like, I've compared him to. Yeah. This is a very different album. Than I would anything say, those artists yeah, definitely or could have released. Definitely very kind of influential in the more modern kind of like avant folk scene. Certainly, yeah. Um, especially with those those tracks like Avalanche that are very steady, mm-hmm. um, or like A Love Calls You by Your Name, uh, the fifth track on here. Yeah. Um, even Famous Blue Raincoat, which uh, is a track that I I think I'd heard before the it's one of his real for. popular ones. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's maybe the most famous one from here. Um, but it is also very, very steady, very uh, slow-paced in where it's taking you to the end of it, um, and very, very lyrical on that track. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting. So was this, was this album, <laughs> comparing it to something mm-hmm. that, again, people will probably ostracize me for, uh, <laughs> the way you've described it and how it was panned out cr- uh, critically, Kind of reminds me of like Weezer's Pinkerton. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, um, which, it, like, what, was Leonard Cohen immediately after this album sort mm-hmm. of uh, on the outs, I guess, musically? Like, how long was it before he released his next one? Um, his next album came out. Give me a second. Let me find it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was... It wasn't very long after. Wait, I have to figure out what album it was that came after this. Um, 74. So he kept on his same, uh, his entire songs trilogy were released 67, 69, and 71. So it was just a couple years after. Oh. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it uh, was a lot more upbeat. Uh, yeah, because I wonder if he took that critical kind out. of panning into account. Yeah, but I mean, I would uh, less put it to like a Pinkerton and more towards uh, Velvet Underground and Nico where mm-hmm. it's extremely influential, although it was kind of panned as just really depressing by a lot of critic critics. Yeah. So it was just, just the fact that it, and it's interesting that they called it depressing. I feel like the emotions that are dealt with on this album are much more complex than that would, than that would lend. Mm-hmm. Um, Which if you want to take this into your closing closing thoughts then. yeah um so this is a great album definitely listen to <laughs> it uh leonard cohen was a songwriter who i was aware of for years this was the first project of his that i'd listened to in full and um i'd say he definitely lives up to the hype for lack of a, a better term um just absolutely fantastic and, and like i was uh saying there uh, this album is a very dark listen at times. It tackles themes of like uh, infidelity and, and suicide and all kinds of dark. Mm-hmm. The, the final track on their Joan of Arc is uh, a sort of uh, uh, the, the inner thoughts of Joan of Arc as she is being set ablaze for heresy, uh, from best I can tell from the lyrics anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but these songs are very, very like... Uh, sort of pristine and beautiful at points that I think if you um, really let them like come into you and do what they're, they're intending to do, you'll find much more than just like another dour, depressing listen. Certainly some tracks are that, but I'd say the album as a whole um, ends up being much more, including that last track, which I find very subtly beautiful by the end of it. Um, in that it's actually, it's a conversation between uh, Joan of Arc and a personification of the fire Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that it, it lends itself to a very uh, interestingly meditative track about uh, death and commitment, sort of. Uh, and I think that's the one that I'll suggest we play. Sounds uh, good to me. Yeah. So this yeah. is the final track off of the Leonard Cohen album, Songs of Love and Hate. It's called Joan of Arc, and you are listening to U92, The Moose. Now the flames... They followed Joan of Arc As she came riding through the dark No moon to keep her armor bright No man to get her through this very smoky night I'm tired of the war I want the kind of work I had before 
a wedding dress or something white to wear upon my swollen appetite la 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 watched you riding every day and something in me yearns to win such a cold and lonesome heroine and who are you she sternly spoke To the one beneath the smoke Why I'm fire, he replied And I love your solitude I love your pride La-la-la, 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 la 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 Then fire Make your body cold I'm gonna give you mine to hold Saying this she climbed inside To be his one To be his only bride And deep into his fiery heart He took the dust of Joan of Arc And high above the wedding guests He hung the ashes Of her wedding dress La-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la Fiery heart. He took. 
took the dust of Joan of Arc And then she clearly understood If he was five Oh, then she must be wood I saw her wince, I saw her cry I saw the glory in her eye Myself, I long for love and light But must it come so cruel And oh so bright WVU-FM, you are listening to United to the Moose. More specifically, Say Something Nice. Uh, it is a radio show in which uh, me and my lovely co-host, Anthony, suggest to one another an album that uh, the other has not heard. Uh, this week, the album that I suggested to Anthony was the record People Who Can Eat Other People Are the Luckiest People in the World by AJJ, formerly Andrew Jackson Jihad. Uh, and I will introduce it a little bit. This album was released in 2006. It is their second album. Uh, they, they are a band founded in Phoenix, Arizona, a sort of folk punk band uh, that was founded in 2004 by Sean Bonnet, Ben Gallaty, and the drummer Justin James White, who left the band soon after. Sean Bonnet and Ben Gallaty are to this day the only consistent members of the band. Um, they, they're really, they have kind of an interesting history being that they got really popular in uh, their hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, pretty quickly upon the release of their first album, uh, which personally I don't think is that good. And I think they would say as well, just the songwriting on there and the instrumentals and everything. Uh, it's, it's a lesser version of what they would come to do. But nevertheless, they got very popular, sold out uh, a lot of mid-sized clubs around the area and uh, signed to Asian Man Records for the release of this album. Asian Man Records is a famed punk and ska punk label. Um, if you have any familiarity with the genre, you've probably heard at least a few releases on Asian Man Records. Um, but yeah, this is a fantastic little folk punk album, in my opinion, one of the best of the genre. And uh, yeah, Anthony, what did you think of this album? It was really enjoyable. Uh, I didn't think, I didn't know that it was going to be this short at first. And I actually like was checking multiple different sources. Like I went to Wikipedia, I went to Reach Your Music and was just like, is it really 26 minutes long? Like, is that all that there is to this album? But it is. Um, and I wanted there to be more, honestly. They kind of really fly through the set list here, which reminds me of immediately and very surface level uh, of one of my favorite bands. Um, parquet courts 
and how they kind of just do songs like back to back to back on their albums and also live. Um, but uh, my first impressions was that it was really funny, uh, which it kind of hits the nail on the head for my kind of humor where it's very like self-deprecating and dark uh, humor as well. And there's parts on this album that I would say are as dark as uh, Songs of Love and Hate, but definitely with a more comedic uh, twist to them. Uh, but I actually had a question for you. I came prepared this time with some questions. Whoa, <laughs> um, question. I know. Um, <laughs> I want to know uh, if you know anything about the recording of this album because it feels like really live, a lot of the songs. Yes, yeah, so uh, I can tell you a little bit about that. This album was recorded at Audio Confusion, uh, which is a uh, studio in Mesa, Arizona, uh, which is not too far away from Phoenix. I don't know Arizona geography, but I don't believe it's too far away from Phoenix. Um, under the producer, uh, Jalapaz Nelson, who also recorded their other first four records. Um, so the one before this and the two after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the studio itself um, lends itself to a lot of live recording and favors a lot of natural reverb. So any reverb that you hear on this album or their uh, recordings after this probably is not placed artificially. Um, something about the way that the building itself is built or the area in which it's laid, um, from what I read, encourages a lot of natural reverb. But yeah, I, I do believe, like, there's very little information, because uh, the band was still pretty small during the recording of this album. They were, you know, like hometown hero kind of yeah. types, but nationally not as well known yet. Um, this was the album that really sent them out uh, out of state, I think. Uh so there's not a lot of information on the recording of this album specifically that, that I could find, but it does reek to me of an album that was recorded in like a weekend. Like it feels like it feels very, very instant uh, in its recording. So I, I would not doubt that it was recorded in, in a short period of time. Yeah, definitely. But it's all, it's like so interesting to me because uh, the first time I listened to this, I was just laying in bed. It was late at night. But like some of the songs ended and I almost just like instinctively started clapping because I felt <laughs> like it was, I was like sitting at a live performance, uh, which the natural reverb definitely helped with that. And I think it, uh, now that you bring that up, really does the album a service because uh, like, I don't know how extensive the mic placement was or how they recorded it, if it was all at the same time or uh, separately into different tracks but it almost sounds like they just kind of put a mic like nice and close to the singer and maybe a mic out into the room and just hit record and like let the band do their thing. Uh, yeah. Given the fact that it was recorded in like a, a, a known, a decently known studio, I'd imagine that there was a few, uh, or there was somewhat more uh, thought that went into it than that, but it does. I think it was intentionally recorded in more of a lo-fi capacity because this album and the way that it it is so short and it runs through all the tracks especially uh towards the middle there there are a few tracks that are like a minute or under Mm -hmm. a minute um right in a row uh it reminds me of like a lot of great punk albums in general Mm -hmm. um those sort of like fast paced like uh can I say balls to the wall on the radio? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this kind of fast-paced balls to the wall sort of uh, sounds like uh, in like an all-killer, no-filler kind of sound where it's like they, you know, they wrote these songs, they're going to play these songs, and then that, that's the album. That is very much what this reminds me of. Um, that's why I think it's, 
if you don't like folk punk traditionally or the sounds it deals with, I would still recommend this album just because I think this is a very good punk album in its kind of song structure and its recording in general. Yeah. For those reasons, largely. It's really interesting because I think at least uh, sonically and definitely instrumentally leans more towards folk than it does punk aside from uh, like track six bells and whistles that actually has electric guitar on it. But I'm pretty (laughs) sure that's the only one in the entire track list. Uh, And only like one of two songs that has real drums on it too. Um, But I was kind of wondering about the label folk punk because uh, although it's definitely definitely kind of has that energy it still reminds me kind of more back to like a, just like a really energetic like bluegrass band or something and i was wondering yeah. how folk punk kind of came around um so folk punk is i mean i can tell you about the genre a little bit um largely inspired by those kind of well, well punk in general is largely inspired by those early like kind of freak folk sounds of like the fugs or, mm-hmm. or like early Velvet Underground even. Yeah. Um, and so I think folk punk largely is a kind of response to the more electric sound uh, punk was getting to and taking it back to its, its roots as kind of a more acoustic driven mm-hmm. um, energetic thing. And a lot of these bands you see uh, come out of, uh, I think, it, and especially folk punk uh, came at a time where punk was sort of being uh, commodified more and it was becoming more of a mainstream sound and pop punk was becoming really big. So I think folk punk was a way to return that more to its uh, kind of lo-fi and underground roots. I think it was kind of mm-hmm. a response to that sound of of the, the mid to late 90s and, and early 2000s, that the, the popification of punk. Um, I think folk punk was kind of the antithesis to that. Okay. Uh, throughout a lot of it that, that's at least the way that i would um characterize it largely yeah that makes sense and it definitely has that punk energy although uh i hate to say more melodic because there definitely is a side of punk that's not uh what like maybe your grandparents think of punk that's just like a bunch of people screaming their heads off uh but how melodic a lot of these songs are and especially like you hear it in the bass uh the bass is not punk influenced whatsoever no which... yeah no not at all because i mean it's a stand-up bass yeah uh, so um um but ben gatley his uh stand-up bass is definitely a consistency through all of uh ajj's work and i think that lends a lot to a sound because there are you know different folk punk groups or uh groups of a similar oak in general that don't have that same kind of consistent uh, melodicism um or consistent energy, uh, or, or uh, I would guess kind of say complexity even, mm-hmm. that I think AJJ has at times. Even though a lot of these songs are simple, I, in going to the guitars, uh, a lot of the complexity I think lends uh, itself to Sean Bonnet as well, who is long, uh, as well as the singer and main songwriter, is the uh, main guitarist for the band. And the songs are simple kind of four chord melodies, but the playing style that Ben uh, or not Ben, the playing style that Sean takes throughout the album is very unique and very interesting. And he's, he's done video breakdowns on the way he's play, he plays guitar before. Um, and it's, it's very unlike what uh, most uh, guitarists in 
any punk genre tend to do, I feel like. Uh, so I think that kind of lends itself to the complexity and uniqueness of uh, AJJ's sound. For sure. Um, well, with that, we're going to take a short little break. So if you're listening to this podcast on any of our digital platforms, uh, go ahead and check out some more uh, student-produced content at our website, unitedtothemoose.com, as well as on Anchor, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. But if you're listening to this live right now on 91.7 FM, U92TheMoose, we're going to take a short break, but we will continue talking about AJJ uh, on Say Something Nice right here on U92TheMoose. My next kind of question, I suppose, is were there people that got actual writing credits on this? Because most notably, uh, I'll go ahead and shout out Simon and Garfunkel for their feature on People 2, The Reckoning. Uh, But also I want to know if Woody Guthrie got a songwriting (laughs) credit as well, because he actually gets called out by name, uh, which is super (laughs) interesting. And I really like it. And it's really funny because they just straight up saying the song, we just ripped off a man named Woody Guthrie, which I did some research on this. Uh, and I looked and they're referencing the song Do Re Mi by Woody Guthrie, uh, released like in the 40s or something, because he's one of those like real old, just like original country singers. Yeah. Uh, and it's the entire chorus from that bridge where it's the, but if you ain't got the Do Re Mi boys, uh, that entire part is just pulled from a Woody Guthrie song. I think the way they appropriate old folk and that like I think the way they appropriate finish my sentence <laughs> I think the way they appropriate old like uh folk and country music in this album is so cool but <laughs> just like um especially because this is probably their punkiest album but it is also their most uh overtly folk inspired just like I said lyrically and mm-hmm. uh and, and the references they use um to my knowledge and from what I've seen in the research I've done uh no they have not gotten <laughs> any there have been no other writing credits um which i guess it's just kind of the the punk thing to do yeah uh but also i think they changed the lyrics enough to where if they were ever called i i can't speak to how they do it with maybe, maybe because they give him a literal shout out uh, maybe that covers the copyright aspect yeah. of it, uh for the woody guthrie bit but for the part where they uh famously this is this is I would say maybe one of their most famous songs and people to the reckoning uh, use the refrain from Mrs. Robinson. Uh, They change it enough to where I think if they were called on it, they could technically call it parody Mm -hmm. Um, because they never say the, the actual full lyrics from Mrs. Robinson. No, they like start uh, off with the first line. It's like, Oh, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, never mind. Yeah. They just cut it off like right there, but then just (laughs) carry on with the melody. So I think that that falls within fair use. Um, It's interesting that you bring up other writers though, because, uh, they were inspired both by a lot of folk music and um, a lot of uh, literary, 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 yeah, yeah. literary writing. Um, the title itself comes; it, it's actually a Kurt Vonnegut quote uh, from the book Hocus Pocus, uh, which itself um, references and, and kind of uh, appropriates or bastardizes the uh, the song People by Barbara Streisand, whose Mm -hmm. uh, original opening lines go, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut then took that, and then AJJ took that. Uh, (laughs) But also their song, uh, Bad Bad Things, is very, I don't know if they've ever spoken about this, but I remember I saw it on on the internet a while ago, and I got really into this author because of them. 
very clearly based on the uh, based on a short story uh, by Flannery O'Connor, um, which when I when I first found that out didn't uh, initially surprise me because I feel like Bad Bad Things is a little bit of an outlier on this track list, in that it's the only song to me that doesn't that's very literal in, in a sense. Um, th- there's a, a thing that's happening in that song. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it a story song because it's not around for long enough to tell a full story. Mm-hmm. But uh, all songs on this album, I would say, are either very surreal and very metaphorical or very um, much uh, from the brain of Sean Bonnet, uh, the songwriter, uh, and kind of display his opinions or, or whatever on the goings-on and the world in general. I would say Bad Bad Things is the outlier there in that it just kind of has a vignette of a serial killer uh, mm-hmm. who is murdering <laughs> or has murdered an entire family of people, uh, which is the plot to that short story by Flannery O'Connor. Um, but I, I think it's interesting how they use uh, literary influences throughout this album. Mm-hmm. Um, this album, how I said that the Leonard Cohen album was, uh, at the same time, is very uh, literary and writerly insofar as I think the way they use humor in this album is very literary. Definitely. Uh, like, there are very few places that <laughs> these kind of, uh, th- this kind of dark comedy would work other than, like, I would say like books and songs are like the two main mm-hmm. places. Um, because it is a very, it's interesting. It's a very funny album, uh, but it is, it works at some of the same themes that like um, the Leonard Cohen album was working at. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you bring up bad, bad things uh, because that kind of allows me to at least uh, just shortly mention the, self-deprecation that is also present on this album but is also accompanied with a lot of this kind of writing style uh but i think the one line that i distinctly remember on that song is when he's talking about i think he's killing someone's mom uh, <laughs> and he says uh it's like and in her eyes i see someone that you and i both hate or the reflection yeah. of someone you and i both hate which yeah. it's really inter- like the fact that he's like, Hey, we like, yeah, I'm killing your mom, but we have something in common. We both hate me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it- no, go ahead. I was just going to kind of tie that in the way that you were talking about the literary, I guess not even so much reference, but um, the inspiration, but such a strong inspiration that it's almost just like covering their different influences uh, really reminds me of uh, both early jazz, but specifically like early country where there were just kind of standards and people would just borrow parts of songs, if not just cover entire songs. Uh, And it's really interesting that that kind of carries into this album because that's a kind of tradition that's been long forgotten by like 70 years before they released this album. Yeah, that is that is absolutely an interesting um, reference and one that I wouldn't have made myself. But um, for sure, I, I do think this is kind of like opening my eyes to how just how folk inspired this album was. Because I had always considered this to be their their most punk album. Um, it, largely, when they went on, they did incorporate more 
uh, electric instruments and, and sort of experiment with different genres. Um, uh, but this felt their most consistent and uh, consistently them, like the sound they had set out to create with this album feels very intentional, very consistent, very what they uh, had intended to do in that kind of folk punk genre. Um, but hearing the folksier side of it coming from you really enhances the album to me um, because I didn't realize how much of both it was doing until you brought up some of these kind of, because that, that repetition of, of classics and standards in the folk and country genres is definitely, definitely a real thing. Um, uh, especially going back, it's interesting how much we've talked about like Simon Garfunkel today, but they've done a few songs throughout <laughs> their run uh, that were just covers of older songs, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, AJJ in this album kind of uh, do that, but they do it in a very kind of ironic, I guess, sort of tongue-in-cheek way where it's either self-referential or appropriative in such a way where it's not just covering a, a class. Yeah, it's really funny because it's kind of like a kill your idols mentality. Yeah, which I, I again, that's something that I would say, I guess, leans to kind of that punk mentality behind mm-hmm. it. Because um, that's, that's a very big thing in punk where it's there. In punk music, there's no respect for the, the elders. <laughs> like in, in most other genres of music, they say, you know, you have to respect those that came before you. That is not a thing uh, largely in punk. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that is kind of what AJJ took into account uh, while making this album. Uh, just a, another short kind of just funny little question. Uh, is that Stormy the Rabbit on the cover? I would assume, yeah, it is Stormy the Rabbit on the cover. The uh, cover itself was done by a friend of the band whose name I am finding currently. but um, In the true punk spirit. In the true punk spirit, yeah. The album artwork was illustrated by uh, Ryan Pistelli. Um, but there's no... I've not read the liner notes for it specifically, but I would assume it's Stormy the Rabbit. I can't imagine it would be <laughs> uh, Being that there's a song in the album dedicated to uh, Stormy the Rabbit. And the memory of... The memory of <laughs> Stormy the Rabbit specifically. Um Another interesting thing when looking at this this album uh, broadly is that it was released on <laughs> September 11th, uh, 2007, okay. which is, uh, I don't know if that was intentional. I have to assume it kind of was, at least or it was thought about. Um, well, then it's just like uh, William Basinski's uh, disintegration loops. You're not allowed to dislike this album because it was yeah. released on 9-11. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that was kind of an intentional not. 2007, we were right in the heat of the uh, Iraq war and everything like that. Uh, and I think this album kind of touches on themes of, of war and, and politics uh, around that time. So I don't know if that would, was uh, an intentional reference, but I have yeah. to assume they at least thought about it a little bit. <laughs> well, uh, I know they... Uh they call out politicians on what song is it? They're saying, uh, that's, that's people too. Uh, is it, okay. talking about, yeah, all the evil people you could be. They mention it's really uh, child pornographers and cannibals and politicians right along too. next to politicians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really, <laughs> really great couplet. Um, yeah, the songwriting on here, I think is, is fantastic in a very different way <laughs> than, uh, Leonard Cohen's is. I feel like, yeah, well, it, it just really hits that stride between uh, covering really dark topics, but still being able to make it comical in a non 
cringy way uh, that I really appreciate. Yeah, um, that is something that unfortunately, like talking about the the future of what this band would go on to do. Um, this album is really fantastic. I just feel it's so short and so sparse. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I mean, it, it is that kind of lens to it as well. Like uh, when I listen to any song from this album, I usually end up listening to the whole album because it's just 25 minutes. That's barely anything when it comes it's to... It's basically an EP. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Um, but speaking on how they kind of uh, reach that middle ground uh, without ever being cringy. I, their most recent album, well, I did so largely like it. There were a few songs on there that I think reached being a little preachy, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I think they amazingly don't do on this album. Uh, for I think it's abstract. Much, yeah, I think it's abstracted yeah. enough. Right. Um, and it's, there's, there's enough kind of like surreal and, uh, again, just largely there are enough comical elements or there's the one song that, that starts out with like, uh, I gave birth to twin wire hangovers, mm-hmm. which is like, it's just such that lyric could potentially have a lot of meaning, but it also could just as easily have nothing. It could just be like a <laughs> funny edgy thing to say. Um, so I think there's enough of it that could be like, you could read irony into, or you could read like sarcasm or, uh, surrealness into that. It doesn't become, um, as as cringy or as preaching as the band i think could be to people who uh don't like it or don't like the newer stuff as much mm-hmm. specifically um because they've always been a political band and they haven't yeah. stopped that but uh well with that i'm gonna go ahead and go into some of my closing thoughts uh which are that i really enjoyed this album it was a very fun listen and i looked forward to listening to it every time that i did uh, give it a listen and if you're just looking for anything like upbeat that'll make you laugh uh, and it's just fun like from front to back and it's so short just go ahead and give this a listen it's really it's as funny as the title uh, makes you think that it would be um, but I would also like to take this time to complain as a biology major for a couple of seconds about in people <laughs> too uh where they say the uh, what is it the parasympathetic nervous system engages and now you're in fight or flight mode that's wrong it's your sympathetic nervous system that controls the fight or flight uh which they could have made that fit just as well i think it was just uh, yeah, a little bit of a mental slip on the I writer's think it's funny, part and that is something that makes me think that it was made i mean it was made in 2007 google was still a thing around that time there's no excuse but that they, they sound very... they sound really young when they wrote this they definitely had a biology <laughs> class like within the last 3 years they should have got i think that. I think it's funny that that is one of the more infamous lines on this album because it is just factually <laughs> it's just incorrect. And it's not even it's not even better for the rhyme. Like you said, they could have fit sympathetic very easily in there. Yeah. Uh, it's been referenced a few different times. Recently, I think he has changed it during live shows. I hope uh, so. For a, while, for a while, he refused to, just out of spite, I think. Um, but yeah, the most, the most recently I've heard them, they have changed it during the live shows. You'll be happy to know. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, yeah. But with that, uh, I think we're just going to go ahead. Uh, it, was, it was tough to pick a song to play from this, but I think we're going to go ahead and listen to Rejoice, uh, the opening track 
on this album, but not before we get to our recommendations for next week, if you're good for that. <laughs> sure. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, I think I'm going to give you the album uh, Colossal Youth by Young Marble Giants. You haven't heard that, right? No, not at all. Okay, good. Good. Uh, would you like to give me like a, a brief primer on the album? Yeah, so uh, it's extremely sparse, early user of drum machines. A lot of the album is just guitar with minimal effects, bass, and a drum machine, uh, and then the singer over top of it. So it's super minimal, uh, and I absolutely love it for that. It's extremely genius, and it's minimalism, uh, and a one-of-a-kind project even though it was released uh late 70s maybe 1980 i think right around there and it's the only album from uh young marble giants interestingly enough their first and only interesting yeah i'm going to give you an album that's the opposite of that as we so often do (laughs) that's not the intention of this show but it just ends up being the case i feel like a lot of the time um but i'm going to give you the uh 2010 record plastic beach by gorillas uh, this is a very sort of, uh, in a sense, pop maximalist just in the different genres and instrumental palettes that they touch upon within this record. Uh, it's not pop maximalist in the way we'd think of today in like a 100 Gex or uh, even Charlie XCX, I suppose, now to a degree fashion. Um, but just in the, the styles that they use, it is very, very much... Um, all over the place uh, kind of an album and, and very well done, I think uh, just in the other direction that yours sounds like it will be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm Perfect. interested to see what you think. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of say something nice. Uh, go ahead and join us next week for plastic beach by gorillas and colossal youth by young marble giants. But with that, uh, gonna go ahead and say goodbye until next week and here is Rejoice by AJJ on U92 FM The Moose Go One, two, three, four
shoot off Oh, rejoice And holy f you're bleeding there Oh, rejoice You burned your whole beard off Rejoice despite the fact this world will hurt you And rejoice despite the fact this world will kill you And rejoice despite the fact this world will tear you